TR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boonwurrung peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. And so with that, let's start the show. Yeah. Welcome to Wednesday Breakfast. How are we all? Good, good. thank you. Good. How are you? I'm good. In the studio we have Rob. Yes. And Lois. <laughs> Woo. Will Green and I are on a bit, of a, a bit of a break yeah. the next little bit. Deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> How's everyone been? What have you all been up to? Uh, been okay. Yeah. Just, I've just got back from overseas, so, so I'm quite tired. Lag. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I'm so excited to be here. I haven't been here for a while, so... Yeah, that's great to have you back. Yeah, thank you you guys. (laughs) What about you guys? I'm good. I'm just preparing for Christmas Mm -hmm. and summer travel. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go to Indonesia. And it's to do with journalism, yes? It is, yeah. It's Mm -hmm. to do with my my degree that I'm studying. So, yeah, I get to spend six weeks there and learn some of the language and do an internship. Do you know what parts of Indonesia you're going to yet? I'll just be in Jakarta. Yes. Okay. Lovely. Yeah. Great. So if you know any um, Bahasa words, <laughs> well, I, think, I think Will's over in Indonesia at the moment. Oh, really? Yeah. So I'm sorry I'm doing some, doing, seeing some cool things over there. Mm. Um, I had a really fun week. I um, went to this amazing concert on Sunday night with this artist called Nils Fram, who mm. I'd seen last year, and it was the best show I'd ever seen. <laughs> so I was super excited to see him again. But it's this like ma- interesting hybrid of classical and electronic music, mm. um, and the music's so intense that in previous shows people have actually fainted in the audience because oh. the music becomes so, so overpowering, overwhelming. Yeah, yeah, and like it's like like I'm not a religious person, but when I go to it, it's kind of like it almost feels like I'm in a religious experience. Like it's kind of you're in this amazing collective environment, and everyone's mm-hmm. kind of crying, and it's mm-hmm. it's weird, but it's an amazing show. Wow, so um, interesting. Yeah. Where is that? What venue? Uh, just at Hamer Hall. Okay. Um, oh, lovely. And he's playing at Sydney Opera House tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So I think so. Super big then, if you're saying it. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, like he's only got one or two shows per city. Yeah. But like the people who would go are like massive, dedicated fans. Mm. So I was definitely one of those people that like queued up to get a signed yes. copy of his CD, <laughs> and, like, mumbled some words about how important his music is to me, and he smiled politely. <laughs> Love that. Yeah, yeah. So I tried. Yeah. Um, but before jump, actually, what do we have on the show today? So at seven thirty, Lewis, what do we have? Uh, we're going to be speaking with Melinda Luzowelski. She's from a grassroots organisation called Collective Shout, who have recently teamed up with two other international organisations to demand some changes on the platform Instagram because they think that young women particularly are being um, exploited sexually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And then at 7.45, we've got a recording from climate activist Jamie Muglin. So she's a queer Jewish Latina climate activist. And I thought this was important to hear this week, particularly because COP25 is happening in Madrid. Mm-hmm. And, you know, while it's important, you know, these discussions are happening, I think it's also really important to be sharing the voices of climate activists who don't always have their voices shared as widely as they could be. Um, then at 8, we've got Jack's Jackie Brown, who will be speaking about some of their new work that they're doing um, in regards to the intersectionality of queer and uh, people with disabilities. And then at 8.15, we have Eugenia Lin, who is an artist who's doing some really cool performances coming up later this week at M Pavilion. 
So it's a pretty pretty packed show. Packed yeah. show. Um, yeah. <laughs> but before that, we might get to some alternative news. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty. Say you're going to have to get right down to the real nitty-gritty. Let's get right down to the real nitty-gritty now. One, two, nitty-gritty now, yeah, boom. Nitty-gritty, who? So, alternative news. Um, so, as I said before, this week is COP25. So, that's the Conference of Parties, and it's happening in Madrid. It was originally supposed to be in Santiago, but following the sort of civil unrest that was happening there, they had to move it, interestingly. Um, and so, yeah, there was an article this week in Mongabay about how COP25 may actually be putting the climate at a greater risk by failing to address how forests uh, interplay into the whole climate reduction schemes that are needed in order to meet the 1.5 and 2 degrees Celsius targets. So obviously all eyes are looking onto Madrid over these next two weeks and the stakes are very, very high. And given that this is the last decade to sort of have a real opportunity to stop irreversible climate change, there's a lot of pressure to get things right. Yet, sort of rather disappointingly, there's been some analysis about how sort of people have been saying how this COP25 has been described as, quote, a stepping stone into what has to happen next year. And this is kind of very similar language that's been happening every year. And obviously it is all building up to something, but it's kind of when it's going to be the point that it built up to something Mm. as opposed to continually building up. Um, But at this year's COP, one of the highest priorities is going to be establishing rules for carbon markets and amongst nations, cities and corporations as a means to incentivizing more aggressive emission reduction strategies across various sectors. And so with that, it's kind of important to note that 20, the world's 20 largest economies account for 75% of all greenhouse gas emissions. And so much of the discussion at COP is going to be about forcing bigger pollutants to take bigger cuts. And so, so much so that actually a recent report came out saying that in order to stay within safe limits and to stop sort of catastrophic climate change, the global emissions must drop by 7.6% annually. So as context, that's faster than the reduction in global emissions from when the Soviet Union collapsed. So it's got to be a massive exercise in order to move towards these needed targets. However, this article in Mongabay was making the point about how another key part in this move for decarbonisation is deforestation, which is actually the second largest emitter of greenhouse gas emissions after energy generation. And so the article was arguing about how we should really using, be using COP as an opportunity to really advance proforestation and reforestation because they're not being as well invested as they could be. Yet this is where the sort of the difficulty lies 
with these kinds of strategies is that proforestation and reforestation strategies are actually quite controversial to be deeply embedded in the Paris Agreement, notably because Brazil is strongly opposed to forest being included in the Paris Agreement um, and this idea of reducing emissions through deforestation strategies, through mitigating deforestation. And so that's going to be a really interesting sticking point because obviously it's needed to address deforestation, mm-hmm. yet given that you know there's over 100 countries, nearly 200, obviously those kinds of issues are difficult to reach. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I guess uh, this is an article that came out yesterday and it was in relation to the New South Wales fires that's been sort of happening and still happening. There's a, there's a large fire down in the Shellhaven and Sydney is still covered in smoke. But it was saying how 10% of New South Wales national parks have now been burnt in the recent fires. And this includes 20% of the Blue Mountains World Heritage Area, which wow. is the Gondwana Rainforest. <laughs> and so that's 800,000 hectares of national parks in the last month, and that compares to 80,000, which was in the entire previous fire season. So it's already 10 times larger, and we've just hit the first week of summer. So it's a little bit worrying about what's going to happen over the summer. And as another comparison, it's 125,000 hectares in the Amazon will burn, and we've had over 2 million Mm. if you include more than just national parks in Australia. But the thing also I wanted to emphasise, I was speaking with some people last night about the fires, and something that's obviously fires are part of the Australian landscape and needed for regeneration of trees, Mm -hmm. but the issue is when it's happening too fast and too yeah. frequently. So there's kind of like a window. I remember studying this, how there's like a window of so many years where it's optimal to have fire frequency, but once you reach beyond that on either end, that's when the issues start to lie. And so the issue is, that, is it going to keep on happening? And if it keeps... Also, like, they're starting to see fires go through an area twice, once to sort of burn out the top growth and then one to, borrow, to burn out all the sort of shrubbery and the below. Mm. Um, if that keeps on happening, it's not going to enable the forests to actually properly regrow. Mm. But yeah, that's my news for today. Jess, what have you got? Yeah, so um, I just wanted to do like a little background um, on this on this situation and um, just give a little bit of an update on it. So um, on the 1st of December, the resignation of the Iraqi Prime Minister Adel Abdul Mahdi occurred. Um, this was amid um, a lot of protests um, sweeping for reform. Um, after there is a new political crisis, oh, it's not really new, um, for against the ruling class. Um, this is amidst like a lot of grievances due to 430 protesters actually being killed in the protests in Iraq, in Baghdad. Um, Iraqis are fed up with the high employment, unemployment rates, um, lack of government services, and they also point to Iraq's oil reserves as a form of sort of evidence that the country really does, it's really, there's no reason for them to be in such an economic, you know, state of emergency when they've got such wealth, like reserves in this sort of sector. Um, It also, so he planned to resign on Friday, but he's now resigned. Um, This violence erupted overnight across several cities um, security forces killed at least 45 demonstrators over a 24-hour period. Um, this is just, when you think about that, that's just really phenomenal for something happening. And, you know, this was all over the media as well, not on the mainstream, but, you know, it was there. And so, you know, to think of that, them not being able to, that was his responsibility. And people are saying that, um, you know, this is just what's happening in the area. This isn't the individual's fault. Um, this is just how the political scheme is. But they've, want, they've wanted to overthrow him, and now he has resigned. 
Um, this is really similar to actually what happened in Lebanon, if you recall. It's still happening. They're um, looking for progress. Not much progress has occurred. Um, but same thing happened maybe a month ago in Beirut when um, Prime Minister Al-Hariri resigned due to the similar, very similar things, unemployment for youth and middle class individuals in that country, um, issues with socioeconomic structures, and it's just there's a pattern occurring, I feel, across this region where they have also they're calling for corruption as well as like the economic issues of they've got wealth, but where is it? Like where is it? These people are working so hard and they're not seeing any of the they're not having any benefits, nothing like that. So I think there's just a pattern forming where now it's in Iraq and now in Lebanon and now also because it trickles through because also in Iraq there's um they were on building relationships with Iran and the Al Khamenei and so now it's recently through these protests we've seen um, Iraqis burning Iran flags and all of this through the streets so it's just a trickle down effect where it's one thing leading on to another the progression of just the people wanting to change the political dynamics of their countries is just trickling down into yeah, yeah. It's, it's a different sort of all the, yeah it's just really interesting to see and also not unique just to the Middle East no. particularly in Latin America yes. as well You've so we've, we've seen sort of this uprising against the sort of the neoliberal systems that have been established there and for a mm-hmm. long time Latin America was considered as sort of a pinnacle mm. of how neoliberalism could play Works, out and yeah. we've seen you know a suite of protests mm. across so many different countries in yeah. that area um, it's just yeah really interesting with the dem- democracy like you know the um, US influence in these countries and how like they've tried to put that in place mm. but because it's just an interesting sort of view of how people are different and their structures you can't enforce these particular political structures on people with you know with just yeah there should be a lot more planning going on within the political dynamics of your country rather than just putting people in charge letting them do their thing like it takes years and years to sort of establish a functioning sort of society and you know pushing like when there's big colonialist countries emplacing all these m- many moons ago it's just now we, we're seeing the effects today of what's happened and where it's come to yeah yeah absolutely mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um there's actually a really powerful image of an iraqi protester who's kind of covered in dirt mm-hmm. and looks really rugged mm-hmm. and he's broken into one of the parliamentary buildings and is sitting on a um, like a big kind of cushiony throne type mm. thing that must be dedicated to some sort of elite member of, of government. Yeah. And it's a really powerful image to see just an everyday person come into a government building yeah. and sit on, sit on an elite person's chair. Mm-hmm. Mm. Definitely. Kind of getting memories of um, uh, with the Hong Kong protests when yeah. they stormed the parliament there mm. and mm-hmm. wrote a whole bunch of slogans on the side of the parliament. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I've got another story that's um, linked to Bali. So the tropical Indonesian island is running out of water with their regular wet season coming later than usual, um, which is contributing to the drought. And all the while, um, the tourism industry is putting pressure on their water resources. Al Jazeera reports that the irrigation system used in Bali normally diverts water to the rice fields in the rural areas, and it's now struggling to keep the land properly watered as increasing amounts of water are being diverted to the urban areas. The Red Cross says that the drought is affecting 50 million people across Indonesia and it's been reported that locals have relocated from their ancestral homes in Denpasar after the groundwater supplies from wells have turned salty. 
According to the Indonesian NGO IDEP, 65% of the island's water is now used for tourism. A representative of a local charity that provides water aid, um, Vibeke Lengkong, says that the government has built pipelines to divert water to where it's needed, but these pipes are empty because of a lack of funding and corruption in the Balinese government. The charity representative also says that a lot of water is being sold to companies like Coca-Cola and Danone Aqua that have big factories in Bali. While um, tourism is not the sole cause of the drought, it is taking up a large amount of water resources, leaving little for Balinese people, uh, which shows that there's an unequal distribution of water on the island. Well, that's alternative news for today. We'll be back after a song, and we're listening to Where Are You by Melanie Horsnell. QR Code is an LGBTIQA plus health podcast made by queers. Across eight episodes, hear us engaging with our communities, discussing diverse and intersecting topics on In Your Face on the last Friday of every month or download from 3cr.org.au forward slash QR Code. And follow us on Facebook 
at QR code 3CR, funded by the City of Yarra. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast, and we have another segment called... (laughs) Play with the numbers. So... Lois, do you want to explain? Yes, welcome to Play With Numbers. So in this game, where no answer is a stupid answer, mm-hmm. we give you a number, mm-hmm. and you have to guess where it has come from. So it's a number linked to a, a story in the news at the moment. Mm-hmm. The first number is 36,523. 36,523. 20, 23. It's a very specific very. number. Or around 36,500, if oh, so you prefer. Did you I have a question. Does it <laughs> does it say the specifics in the article that you're coming from, or did it say around? Like which one did it say? In the, the exact article? number okay. um, that has come exact. from a government department government? is thirty six thousand five hundred and twenty three. Okay. okay. I, it feels like people. Yeah. It's a it's a number of people. I feel like okay. it, I feel okay. like it's too small to be money. Can, it, can is that a yes to be people? Should I just give you the answer or clues? Clues. Clues. It's not people. Okay. okay. Definitely not people. Interesting. We've been talking about it this morning, mostly considering New South Wales, but it's also happening in Victoria. Uh, Fires. Fires? Mm -hmm. Is it the The number of fires? No. Number of... And it can't be number of hectares. Oh, Oh, it is? Yes, it is the number of hectares of land with uncontrolled fires in Victoria or going fires, as they're called by the Department of Environment, Land Mm -hmm. and Water Planning. Oh, wow. As in currently right now? Currently right now. Yeah, as of yesterday on the department's website. Hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. Well done. Next number is 1.1. Is it like 1.1 million? million? Or like no, it's just 1.1, which is, yeah, a very small okay. number. Is this, uh, okay, I, my guess is something to do with temperature. And I yeah. wonder, is it, is it a degree uh, up? Is our, yeah, it's uh, temperature above pre-industrial yeah. levels. Wow, great job. Did is you it? read the article? <laughs> that from? Yes, so the World Meteorological Organization reported that the first 10 months of 2019 are 1.1 degrees warmer than they were in pre-industrial time. You yeah, because I was like, so well. yeah, well, it was like, like 1.5 is like, that's the number that comes to mind. Yeah. That's the only number of significance that's so low. And I was like, well, maybe it's a little temperature. A so, of a high significance. <laughs> yeah. The next number is a bigger one, 5,627,423. Can you say that again? 5 million. 5,627,423. It's a fun one. It's a fun one. Yeah, it's a bit less serious. Is it people again? Yeah. No, oh. not people, yeah. Okay. Interesting. I don't know. It sounds like it's... It is it something that's like sync signs for a petition of some sort? No, it's it's more fun than that. Okay. It's Five just, million for it's a petition would be great. It's not very serious. Yeah, I was going to say. It is entertainment <laughs> news for yes. your... Yeah. Oh, is it a, an ad? An advertisement that had a particular amount of views? No, no. but you're getting close. What number of listeners? Yes. Listeners. Okay. Yes. Five million. Oh, is it the Spotify thing that came out the other day? No. Close. Okay, I said it. It's close. Okay. Yeah. Is it so? In terms of, so it sounds like it's like number of people who listen to something. Yeah, it is. Okay. Yeah. So is it music related? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Is it something to do? Oh, I don't know. Five million. So Within tones the, and I. 
Oh, her song Dance, Dance Monkey, Monkey has been streamed um, 5,627,423 times on Spotify. And the reason I checked that out was because she took home four Arias last week. Right. Ah, nice one. That's yeah. a lot of... Li- that's a lot. Yeah. The song's only been around for six months, yeah. too. It is on the, every yeah. single channel on the radio every time yeah. I turn it. Yeah. But yeah, definitely. Another one? Yeah. Sure. Time for one, one more? Okay, <laughs> this is a little serious now. So the number is 15 million. I keep thinking population and money. That's yeah. the only two things that ever Is it a population number, though? It's not a population. Okay. Okay. But money. it's maybe money? Yeah. We're getting clues, hand signals, <laughs> that it might be money. <laughs> is it something to do with, like, a fine? No, it's something to do with... um. Um, MP under investigation by the New South Wales Police. So this is to do with um, the, the the forged letter. Yes. With um, Clover Moore. Yes. yes. And Angus Taylor. Uh, okay. is this no? This isn't the like the supposed amount of money that she spent. So yeah, that's the, the, the um, accused amount of money mm-hmm. that she spent. So it was oh, fifteen wow. million dollars listed on the fabricated documents um, used by the Minister for Energy, Angus Taylor, to show how much money Sydney City Council has spent just on travel. But, Clovermore um, specifically. Clovermore, yeah. Mm-hmm. So the um, figures were sent to the Daily Telegraph and they're now being investigated by the New South Wales Police. But the real public report that the council made available had an amount of $6 million. So there's a difference of okay. $9 million between the two figures. And I think I read, I can't, I'm pretty sure she, for Clovermore herself it was only 6000 or something like that. It was oh, wow. 4500 internationally and 1500 Yeah, it would be yeah. interesting to know where they came the from. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> where the funds coming from. So from, from what I understand, she doesn't actually travel that much, okay. at least from the articles that I've yeah. read. But hmm. Yeah. There you go. Well, thanks very much for playing with the yeah. numbers. Um, you're listening to 3CR Breakfast. We're going to play another song before our first re- interview. Um, this is Waving Goodbye by Tidas.
Next, we're talking to Melinda Lizewski from Collective Shout, which is a Sydney-based grassroots movement, and she's going to chat to us about a new international campaign called Hashtag Wake Up Instagram. So as part of the campaign, three anti-sexual exploitation organizations from Australia, the US and Canada have come together in this joint uh, movement to call out the policies of the social media platform Instagram that fail to protect the safety of underage girls. Good morning, Melinda. Morning, Melinda. Thanks for chatting to us today. Oh, good morning. I just wanted to start uh, with a bit about the new campaign. So can you tell us a little bit about the hashtag Wake Up Instagram movement and the different groups that have come together to push for change? Sure. Well, um, so Collective Shout, uh, which um, the organisation I'm from, is a uh, grassroots uh, movement um, challenging the sexualisation of children and objectification of women in, in popular culture. And we've noticed for some time that Instagram, um, well, I'll, I'll back up a bit. Uh, one of my colleagues had been looking at Instagram and she came across some hashtags which linked to photos of girls in uh, gymnastics gear, dance gear, and also child modelling. And she noticed that on a lot of these child modelling pages, photos of little girls, which in any other context would be innocent, um, and in this context they're probably intended to be innocent, uh, were attracting a lot of attention from men who were leaving these really horrible, uh, explicit sexual comments on their photo. These are girls as young as five. Mm-hmm. And um, so we, we started tracking this um, and um, collecting uh, examples of this. And we also, um, we know of a group in um, the US, which is the National Center on uh, the Ex- uh, Sexual Exploitation and... Um, uh, we connected with them because we, we understood that they had been looking at Instagram as well. Mm-hmm. And they also uh, connected us with another group, Defend Dignity in Canada. And so combined, uh, we, we formed this campaign, Wake Up Instagram, um, to call on Instagram to toughen up its, uh, its policies and its strategies for tackling child sexual exploitation on Instagram. Um, we've heard a, a number of stories where Instagram has been involved in the process of tra- trafficking young girls mm-hmm. um, and that and them being on Instagram puts it at risk. Um, so th- there's a lot of things that Instagram claims that they're doing to um, stop this problem, but uh, we think if that was true, we wouldn't be finding examples of men um, following harassing stalking and indeed collecting these images from Instagram um, on a daily basis. And Melinda, what are the key policy changes that the campaign is demanding? So um, from Instagram, we are calling on them to um, to take more proactive measures to um, find uh, these these men who are um, uh, who are targeting young girls and to identify these explicit comments and and remove them and indeed remove the men from the site. Um, we're also asking them to um, uh, change their policies for reporting these things so that when uh, we someone comes across 
these sort of comments on girls' Instagram pages that it is easy to report. Because at the, at the moment, it's, there's not a clear direction on how to report. There's, there's things like you can report for nudity and pornography or harassment and bullying. Um, but it, there's nothing that seems to exactly capture what this issue is. Um, so some of the things we've uh, reported, Instagram has come back to us and said, this doesn't violate our community guidelines. Right. Um, for example, there's, there's a, a few pages we've found where um, there are adults, uh, in one case, it looks like a mother who has this page set up for her daughter and um, posts all these photos of her daughter in bikinis, videos of her daughter in bikini, and she's got a tiered subscription service where men can sign up for, for quote, exclusive content. And um, the exclusive content is more, um, more sexualised and semi-naked photos of her 13-year-old daughter. Mm. And we've reported this to Instagram and we've been told it doesn't violate community guidelines. So do they so have it, any controls about uh, the content shown on their on their website? Like what is not allowed on Instagram at the moment? So Instagram has, um, they have a policy against nudity. So one of the ways that they define nudity is, uh, for example, a, um, if, if women's nipples are exposed and if, if like somebody's naked buttocks are exposed... Uh, which is really, um, it's a really narrow and limited way to actually address sexual exploitation on, on Instagram. Like we know with, with child pornography laws, children don't have to be fully naked or even naked at all for something to be um, understood to be child exploitation material. If, if children are presented and posed in such a way that is, is designed to um, to sexualise them or to uh, be titillating for um, child sexual predators, then that is something that crosses the line. And we've seen a lot of the stuff that we've seen on Instagram is the, there's, there's the, the photos which are like in the gymnastics or the dance gear, but then there are some photos where it's, it gets increasingly sinister where it looks like the girls have been posed mm-hmm. in different ways, but they're fully clothed. And so, you know, I'm, I'm not law enforcement, so I don't have the authority to d- declare what fits in what category, but there does seem to be a spectrum here um, of where it, it, it leads into the child sexual exploitation material and illegal category. But, but yeah, Instagram, Instagram, to report that, like if we were to report some of these images to eSafety, for example, our national um, governing body for, for determining what's illegal and what's not, some of them would, would, they, they would come back, and indeed they have come back and said these things are illegal. Mm-hmm. But, you know, context is everything. They're, they're children in, that are opposed wearing very little, and then men are attracted to these images. Um, We've also had to, in a number of cases, report these accounts and these photos to the police, some of the things that we've come across, because we believe that they have crossed the line. Um, We have also come across, in the course of our campaigning, um, external websites, which, again, we've had to report this, where men are collecting and, and harvesting these images from Instagram, so... Um, and and collating them on an external website and they've got them categorised. So it'll say gymnasts and dancers and you click on that, then it opens to a new page and it's got these little girls listed by name and it matches up with their Instagram profiles. And in these um, in these pages that open up, it has the girl's name, it has her account, it has all of her images. And the men write these erotic, very detailed erotic stories about these little girls and... Um, I mean, this is horrific and we've reported it. And we just think if some of the parents knew what was being done with the photos that they've maybe naively 
put onto Instagram um, and not understood what can happen to these images, if they knew what was being written about their daughters, surely, surely they'd be horrified. And the way we, as a non-profit organisation, we've done some investigating and these are the things that we've found out. And mm-hmm. we figure if this is what we know, how much more must Instagram know? That, that's their platform. Do you um, think that yeah. um, creating an age limit for Instagram accounts is a good idea or do you think that it shouldn't be um, girls that are under 18 that are excluded from Instagram because of these practices you're, you're seeing? Well, the, the more I look at it, the more that occurs to me that it, it, I, I'm, the more I'm looking at it, I'm thinking, gee, maybe children actually shouldn't be allowed on Instagram at all. Mm-hmm. The, the current age rating is 13 plus, um, but we're seeing uh, girls, children much younger than that, are featured on pages. Um, and that's, that can sometimes be because the mother has an account where she's got pictures of her children. Um, very often it's little girls under the guise of child modelling. Um, they put photos of their children up there and, and they hashtag an influencer, like they're wanting their daughter to be an influencer and get into modelling and dance or whatever it may be. Um, but, but these little girls are like seven, eight years old, some of them as young as five in their little dance outfits. And one of the, the sinister things that we've discovered too is that Instagram says it's the 13 plus, but in, when you look at Instagram and you go to their, their explore feature, it's like on the little search icon, you click that and it says explore. Mm-hmm. And based on the pages that you're following, Instagram will deliver photos to you and it will say, little captions saying, see more posts like this. And so I've got an, an account which I had started to investigate this following uh, accounts of some child models and dancers and things like that, just all mainstream photos. And it was directing me to um, photos like a five-year-old girl. So there's a little girl in a, a ballet outfit. Um, see more posts like this. So I'm, I'm being directed to find accounts that I would never have come across but for Instagram algorithm directing me there right. and we can see with the the pages that uh how men are sort of flowing through to these little girls pages so they might start on a there are also parasite pages like um uh like gl- young glamour girls is, is, is an example of one title they might put and they, they this is a parasite page that has collected images from all little girls pages they post the photo they say the model, they'll put, they identify the model and they say, follow her here. And so men are being flowed through to these little girls' pages and they're there, that's where they try to interact with them. And um, in some cases, the, the page will say it's run by mother, as in the mother who's running the page and responding. But in many cases, we're seeing, just based on the response, like the interaction from the man and the, and the account responding, that it's very clear, clear that it's the little girl who is... Is, is interacting with these men. And that is that is really putting girls at risk. Um, it does sound dangerous. really shocking, Melinda. And for yeah. our listeners who um, want to get involved, um, participate or learn more about the campaign, how can they do that? Probably the easiest way to do that would be to go to www.collectiveshout.org, so all one word. Um, on our homepage, we've got a big banner there that says Wake Up Instagram. And if you click that, you'll go straight through the campaign and you'll see um, some directions of how to get involved. And you can also sign up um, through our website to receive updates from us. And that way you can um, you can sort of add your voice to the chorus of people speaking out. We've, we've seen recently uh, that young woman, um, Virginia Dufresne speaking out about um, Jeffrey Epstein and Prince Andrew and she was exploited as a young girl and, and what's really occurred to me is that 
we shouldn't be waiting for girls like Virginia to have to grow up and be an adult and speak to the BBC about what's happened to her before we care about little girls' well-being. We, we can see all of this happening in plain sight now, and so we have to act now. So that's, um, that's where we're really imploring people to get involved because our, our girls and all our children are really important. Great. Thanks so much, Melinda, for having a chat to us about Collective Shout and its new campaign. Oh, thanks very much for having me on. It's great. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. And up next, we've got a recording from Helen Jarvis, who is a geographer speaking about genocide in Sri Lanka. I was asked to, um, to come along and chair and to say a few words uh, to today uh, because I was a judge in the Permanent People's Tribunal hearing on Sri Lanka uh, just after Lee was there. So um, they were, uh, had their fact-finding mission in November 2013 and in December 2013 uh, we held a panel of uh, judges from the Permanent People's Tribunal. Uh, the, the panel, uh, this particular panel, Uh, was on the issue of genocide, was genocide committed in uh, in Sri Lanka. And it was held in Germany, in Bremen. The the sponsors of the the tribunal were the um, International Human Rights Association of Bremen and the Irish Forum for Peace in Sri Lanka. They held a first... Uh, session hearing of the Permanent People's Tribunal in 2010, which made findings of uh, crimes against humanity and war crimes. But they said they did not have enough time to consider and there was not enough evidence brought forward to consider the question of genocide, which required a more intensive investigation and and legal analysis. And so the second session uh, was called. I'll just step back one minute to say what is the Permanent People's Tribunal uh, because many of you may not have heard of it. Uh, But it was founded in 1979 uh, but it grew out of uh, tribunals that were held in the 1960s uh, known at that time as the Russell Tribunals, Bertrand Russell uh, Tribunals on Vietnam in the 60s and then in the early 70s also on um, the dictatorships in Latin America and South America. And uh, Bertrand Russell and Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, 
convened these people's tribunals saying that the states were creating uh, the crimes, committing the crimes and why should we leave questions of justice in the hands of the states it should be the people who should uh, judge what the states are doing it's, uh, it's quite a controversial uh, uh, framework uh, but the Permanent People's Tribunal was established afterwards in Rome, its headquarters are in Rome, and it continues today. Um, it's had more than 50 sessions around the world on uh, specific issues that are brought forward by communities uh, that are uh, suffering per persecution from the state. And uh, it has also not just been on question of human rights and similar uh, persecutions that we would be discussing in the case of Sri Lanka but also more systemic um, persecutions and uh, infringement in terms of um, the structural uh, framework of the World Bank, the IMF um, multi uh, pharma, big pharma um, multi uh, projects of, uh, of uh, railways and, and mining and so forth. So there's a, a, a number of, of different aspects. Fracking has been a recent one and the most recent one they've held has been on the case of refugees. They had about five or six hearings through Europe, so focusing on the, on the rights of, of, of refugees that are, are being infringed uh, daily, of course. So that was uh, why I was asked to, to, to speak. Uh, in our um, in our tribunal in Bremen, uh, we did reach a finding that uh, the genocide had been committed. I thought it was very important that Lee started with the historical analysis, which is exactly what, what we did also in Bremen, where we um, came up with the... She... No, just a moment. Um, Lee uh, referred to... Uh, tension between Tamils and Sri Lanka is a, is a clear byproduct. Uh, just Tamils and Sinhalese is a clear byproduct of British colonialism, and that was indeed uh, the same perspective that we had in Bremen, uh, where we uh, formulated. Um, where have I lost my piece of paper? Um, we we formulated it as um, the logical manifestation of the structural genocidal and colonial um, uh, period and the constitution of the newly independent state. So we indeed went back to look at some of the legal framework that was established and the economic framework that, that Lee pointed to uh, through the colonial period. And that was um, at the time when we, when we brought it forward uh, was considered somewhat controversial because uh, many people wanted to see what was going on in Sri Lanka as a simply, simply uh, a Sinhalese uh, um, aberration or um, ethnic persecution, historical enmities between ancient hatreds, that, that framework of analysis. So we looked at it very much in terms of, uh, of the colonial uh, constructs that, that were built there. We were also asked to look at complicity. So uh, we were asked for, yeah, was genocide committed? We said yes, uh, by the uh, Sri Lankan state. 
and complicity. We were asked to rule on complicity by UK, US and India. Uh, in our findings, we said that, yes, we thought all three were complicit, uh, but we, uh, specifically, um, we specifically found the US and the UK um, uh, uh, guilty of, gen of uh, complicity and, and aiding and abetting the genocide, not only for the colonial period, but what had happened during the uh, post-independence period and particularly in the 1980s with military intelligence, military support, enormous assistance to the surveillance and repression uh, apparatus that was built in Sri Lanka. And uh, also in the case of uh, the USA of undermining the peace process that was going on by precisely the labelling of the Tigers as terrorists. And we said that that was uh, in itself uh, led to uh, the, um, the, the, the extreme uh, um, after uh, um, end of the war. Um, in the case of India, we did not reach a finding. We said we hadn't had enough um, evidence uh, presented and there were differing roles over different periods of the Indian involvement and we left that to one side, although we did certainly criticise the role of India at several uh, particular uh, points along the way. The other point that we uh, looked at was looking at genocide against the national group and we referred to the national group as the Elam Tunnels and that again there was a lot of legal uh, uh, discussion about, about that label and the other thing is we looked at uh, the um, crimes, the acts of genocide that were committed and we included the sexual violence and rape uh, as part of it, which is often not included in, in genocide. And the final thing we did was uh, say that the genocide was ongoing. It wasn't, we weren't looking at a historical uh, event that had, uh, had, had ended in, in May 2009, but was indeed ongoing as, as Lee has suggested, uh, continuing genocide. But we said that uh, the, it's a continuing but has not yet uh, accomplished the total destruction of the identity of the Elam Tunnels which is of course what was the intention of the, um, of the perpetrators. So uh, that's just to put in, uh, into the context one um, analysis and one effort of international solidarity that, uh, that was taken. Uh, there are of course many others and uh, attempts at, um, at seeking assistance through the UN system, through the International Criminal Court, through other ways which have so far not led to any success uh, at all. You're listening to 3CI Wednesday Breakfast, and that was Helen Jarvis, who is a geographer speaking about genocide in Sri Lanka. Unfortunately, we weren't able to play the piece by Jimmy Marglin. We had a few technical issues, but yeah, that was Helen Jarvis um, from a recording back in 2014. Up next, before our interview at 8 o'clock with Jax Jaxi Brown, we have another song called Nagilumpa by Buna Lowry. <laughs> I wanna hear the sound 
listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, and that was Nagurumpa by Buna Lauri. 
It's coming up to 8 o'clock, and up next we have an interview with Jack Straxy-Brown. So, Jack Straxy-Brown is a queer disability rights advocate who works at Drummond Street Services on LGBTIQ plus disability projects. And this morning they have an exciting initiative to share with us. So, welcome, Jax. Good morning. Good morning. So, you've been working with Queerspace, and now you're starting to team up with the Disability Advocacy Resource Centre. So, what is this new exciting work that you're involved in? Yeah, so Disability Advocacy Resource Centre is the statewide disability advocacy uh, resource space that assists um, a number of uh, government-funded uh, advocacy organisations to provide different types of advocacy across the state. Um, and we got a grant through the Office for Disability to partner with them to develop training for the disability advocacy sector in LGBTIQ disability issues and also for the um, LGBTIQ uh, organisations and individuals in um, disability advocacy and disability rights as well. So, yeah, it's really exciting. We're getting to do face-to-face and online training in how to work with LGBTIQ people with disabilities. Absolutely, that's great. Um, I guess I was wanting to ask, like, so what are the kind of resources that you're sort of starting to create and sort of hoping to create through this collaboration? Yeah, so we're, um, we're developing an online, two-hour online training module for um, the Disability Advocacy Organisation, uh, and then we're developing a four-hour face-to-face training for the LGBTIQ community, for LGBTIQ people, queer people who might be interested in knowing how to advocate alongside uh, people with disabilities um, and then also um, disability advocacy organisations who want to know how they can be more LGBTIQ inclusive. Um, So we've we've filmed a number of um, short films with queer disabled people talking about the different issues that we experience and come up against in terms of access, um, um, accessing services, uh, how to work together and what kind of um, social justice issues affect the disability community um, and also the LGBTIQ community, so the kind of cross issues that we can work together on to create change. Um, And we're also creating a number of tip sheets that people can take away that talk about the kind of advocacy work they might want to be involved in um, and what intersectionality looks like in that space. Yeah, I was going to ask, so what are some of the barriers that we're seeing in regards to creating organisations and queer organisations that are also more accessible? Um, so there's really, like, structural things. So thinking through the different access issues people might come up against, so wheelchair user myself, so for me, you know, obvious things like having ramp access um, and having that kind of at the front of the building where possible, not around the side or around the back where I've got to go kind mm-hmm. of in search of it. Um, also having like your reception area have a low uh, space so people can um, see the receptionist and got clients forms and do all that kind of stuff. Um, but then other things, so like other kind of impairments are people on the autism spectrum might need a quiet space um, where they can go um, and spend time and if they're feeling a bit overwhelmed. Um, so thinking through 
the variety of different kind of disabilities people might present with to your organisation and being able to think about what are their specific access requirements and how might you respond to that as an organisation. Um, so we're providing uh, an accessibility checklist to think through all the different kinds of things that you might want to um, start to provide to, to be more accessible and inclusive. So I think often when people think about access, they more only think about does my does my building have a ramp, but they won't actually think about do I have accessible transport options, uh, you know, near near my place, how would someone navigate um, to get here, what does that look like, um, can I speak to somebody directly who knows about how to improve their access requirements, all that kind of stuff. Absolutely, and as much as you say it's about the, the, the facilities within the building, it's also about how you get there and how you use the space and, and everything else. And I imagine mm. a lot of that discussion will come through sort of a collaborative co-design process with organisations and resources that you're setting up as well. Yeah, so we've got a co-design group which comprises of um, LGBTIQ people with disabilities, so people with lived experience, um, uh, disability advocates, so people that work in the disability advocacy sector, and then LGBTIQ people who work in that space as well. They're really kind of assisting us to think through the complexities of all the different um, things that organisations might want, but then all the different things that individuals are experiencing on the ground as well. Hey, Jax, it's Jess speaking. Um, just had a quick question. You mentioned the checklist for the accessibility. Has that been finalised or are you, you all still sort of... Uh, still getting together talking about that? or And if it has been finalised, are you thinking about, you know, where would you aim to spread it out first? Are you going to go to your organisations? Or just, if we, yeah, I just wanted to find out a bit more about your checklist. Yeah, so we're definitely still working on it. We're looking at kind of rolling out our training in the in the first half of next year. Mm-hmm. So we're having a lot of co-design meetings at the moment <laughs> and and discussing all kind of the finer details of things and what definitely needs to be included in the training and in the tips and online resources. But, yeah, it'll definitely be something that um, will go out broadly because it's something that um, we feel like people are, are really hungry to start to think through. How do I work through this process? What, what might that look like? And what are the people that I might be forgetting about when I think about access to? Very exciting. <laughs> and so through all this work, have you come across any other organisations or cities or governments who are doing some really great work in this space? Or is it still a relatively sort of area that needs more more work in it generally? Um, yeah, look, I think people are starting to really think about it and particularly in LGBTIQ um, spaces, people are starting to think about disability not as a... a individual condition that someone might live with, but as an aspect of identity, similar to queer identity, so as something that people might um, that might shape their lives and that they might feel proud of and connected to other people through. So that, that's really heartening for me to see it become an issue of identity and of human rights. Um, but I think that uh, often it's a really kind of new areas for people to think about how they might begin to actually provide services to people in a way that's inclusive and responsive to people's needs. Um, so, 
yeah, look, um, it's kind of an emerging area, but I feel like they're at this point, and particularly in Victoria, to be honest, there's there's quite a hunger for um, for starting to address some of this stuff and actually be more inclusive and accessible. And is there, like in the sort of the roadmap, and obviously there's a lot of great work happening right now, is there sort of a plan to sort of introduce this more in terms of parliament and sort of make it more sort of established part of how facilities and resources are made? Or are you working more on the sort of providing guides for organisations to use? Um, so we're providing a number of different trainings. We're doing nine different uh, trainings. We're trainings that go for four hours directly to individuals. So, so face-to-face training as part of the project. But then we're hoping to have it as a resource that sits um, at Dara and, and also at Queerspace, so kind of with both organisations, that we can continue to go out and train different organisations and, and individuals, LGBTIQ groups, um, that really want to start to think through this stuff. So, so we don't necessarily see it having um, an endpoint in terms of where it might go. We'd hope that it would be kind of the beginnings of, a, of, of a, an ongoing conversation with community about how what this what one inclusivity really looks like. Absolutely, and sort of to keep evolving over time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, yeah, great. And for those who are interested and want to get involved or to, to read more about it, how can they do so? Um, so they can contact me at Drummond Street Services, and I'd, I'd really love people who really want um, and we're really interested in what the training might have to offer as well because we're really looking for, um, you know, LGBTIQ people or people that work in disability rights who um, who are interested in, in having some training come to their workplace and the training is free with, with us. So you cover catering, but we're really open to, to um, providing this. So if you contact me at Drummond Street, um, we can go from there. Amazing. Thanks so much, Jack Jackie Brown, for sharing your work. It's, it's really incredible stuff. No worries. So that was Jack Jackie Brown, who is a queer disability rights advocate who works at Drummond Street Services. Up next, we have another interview with Lugenia Lim, but just before then, we have a few community service announcements. Solidarity to the occupations and spaces for struggle of Athens. Come to Café Gummo, 711 High Street, Thornbury, on Thursday, the 5th of December, for a night of music and poetry to support the Anti-Repression Assembly in Athens. See the Maltese Well Monster, Pio, Coralie Dimitriadis, Biscotti, Tellurian B and Bandidas. All money raised will go to the work of the Assembly, who are a network of activists and refugees fighting the intensified police repression of refugee support and political spaces in Exarchia and Central Athens. The Anti-Repression Assembly fundraiser at Café Gummo, 711 High Street, Thornbury, on Thursday, the 5th of December. For more information, search Anti-Repression Assembly fundraiser on Facebook, a 3CR supporter. Donington presents Carols at Como Park. Join host Rob Mills, X Factor's Isaiah Firebrace, and more for Carols at Como Park. South Yarra will come alive with song and good cheer at this much loved Christmas event. Bring the friends and family and be sure to stay for the spectacular fireworks display. Carols at Como Park. 
Sunday, 15th of December from 7.30pm. Visit the City of Stonington website for details. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, and on the line we have Eugenia Lim. So Eugenia is an artist and co-director of AFIDS, and she works across video, performance and installation to explore ideas of nationalism and stereotypes. Eugenia's work has been featured at Dark Mofo, The Tate Modern, and now more recently at M Pavilion in Melbourne. Welcome, Eugenia. Thanks, Rob. Um, so I was going to ask, so across your various works that you, you've created. You've covered multiple themes. However, more recently, a few of your pieces have started to focus more on labour and perhaps the the more unpleasant foundational truth to how our society functions. So, for example, your your 2017 performance, The People's Currency, tells stories of people, um, the frontline workers of the, in the globalisation era. And so in 2020, you're going to be exploring these themes of labour through your upcoming performance, Easy Writers. And so I wanted to ask, what is this piece about and what was the prompt for writing it? I think that I'm really interested in this idea of the future of work. Um, I feel like we're sort of living in an era where technology is um, rapidly kind of, um, I guess, kind of like embedding itself into our lives in the way that we talk to each other and communicate, the way that we consume things. Um, And I think that this sort of technological advance is sort of um, outpacing our ethics in a way, like the way that we sort of treat each other, we're sort of not really considering that at the speed at which technology is sort of um, advancing. So I feel like the work is it's definitely about labour and it's also about, I guess, the way that we see ourselves in that and, like, the, the kind of idea of um, how we might be complicit in these systems of sort of, like, supply chains and um, gig economy um, work as well. So I guess it sort of comes from a questioning for me of, like, Firstly, what's my role in the system? And then how can I also sort of uh, open up these questions for an audience as well? Yeah, well, it's interesting because with a lot of sort of gig economy services, they are quite dehumanising. You don't see necessarily the people behind all the deliveries until, you know, they kind of deliver your food, in which case you're kind of more interested in the food. Um, and it's sort of interesting about humanising people in a very dehumanised industry in some ways. And so yeah. I, I was reading how with in developing Easy Riders, you worked with workers in the gig economy. And so I was curious, through this co-development process, what were kind of some of the discussions that started to emerge, both sort of expected and unexpected? For sure. So I've been working with a a small cohort of gig economy workers, so they're drivers for Uber, they're ex-food delivery riders, and they still work in that industry, um, or they're occasional cleaners through Airtasker. So they're all people who have quite varied experience, but... um, I guess, kind of answered this strange artist call <laughs> to work together. And I think um, over the last sort of, I guess it's been about nine to ten months, and we're also working with them this week at Ambrosillion, um, I think that the things that I expected, the themes to arise, um, many of them have, and that is about this idea of, I guess, the anonymity, um, which big companies like Uber um, and Amazon and kind of other huge giants, they kind of thrive on this idea of not seeing the worker, of kind of keeping those people, um, you know, like... Sort of secret and hidden. ...app or, like, without any agency of their own. And I guess 
was sort of talking about this yesterday, this idea of um, in supermarkets we sort of receive our food in these very neat packaged, um, you know, little parcels and we don't see, I guess, the animals or the kind of these processes that have happened um, to kind of deliver this convenient package to us. And I guess I just see the big economy is a kind of extension of what's happening on that front that's been happening for, for ages. Um, so that was not really a surprise that the workers were feeling um, quite yeah, isolated in a lot of their work. What was surprising to me um, and what I didn't expect is that um, one of the workers uh, has a history of um, like labour politics. So his uh, grandfather was a journalist at um, Parliament House like reporting on on um, national politics and his parents had a history of like, you know, working in the Labor Party. It was really interesting to kind of talk to him about how he'd ended up um, working, you know, for Fedora, but actually had this real history of activism in his family. Um, and also that, I guess, it's quite a confusing sort of ambiguous time because with the big economy, um, there's a lot of kind of talk about like workers' rights and fair pay and good conditions, which they totally deserve and which um, I think they are fighting for. But at the same time, the big economy model would fall down tomorrow, I think, mm-hmm. which is the scary thing for a lot of workers because many of them really rely on this work. And so they're caught in this strange place of kind of wanting to be treated fairly and with good conditions like, you know, unionised workers. But also worried about what happens if um, that job goes. So it's a kind of really interesting place to be looking into it with them. Absolutely. And I guess one of the other themes that I'm quite interested that you're exploring within Easy Riders is the sense of ownership, which you kind of sort of briefly touched on. Um, and so many of these companies establish this idea that sort of you know anyone can be a driver. It could be you know your neighbour, your mum, or your dad, or your sister, or brother, or anything. Um, but underneath that, there's kind of something a bit more dark, and whether this decision is actually that sort of liberating and free, or whether workers of the gig economy are kind of having their lives lived by other people. And so, how has working on Easy Riders helped you sort of form an understanding of this sort of more troubling foundation that's starting to emerge in contemporary society? Definitely. Well, I think, I mean, I've been working predominantly with um, food delivery couriers and some Uber drivers, and I think um, through my own research and also kind of researching this uh, more broadly in in the media, um, the main demographic is generally, um, you know, migrants. So they'll generally be like, uh, you know, waiting for a visa or undocumented, um, kind of in a quite vulnerable position already. Um, so their bargaining power is not that great. Um, so I guess that's how they're able to, uh, I guess how Uber or these larger companies are able to kind of like hold on to this um, low-paid workforce because they don't really have um, many other options, unfortunately. So it's, it's been interesting to sort of, I guess, yeah, talk to people who have moved to Australia either, you know, in the last couple of years or see themselves as like um, wanting to stay here but, but not really having any certainty or security or other means of work. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's been, that's been interesting. I, I think that that means that they're definitely on an uneven playing field. It's not like they can really, um, you know, go and find a job in, a, um, in another industry that easily. So I think that's been um, the kind of, yeah, what I've sort of found. Um, as an overarching thing. So it's generally 
young people um, in the food delivery industry, um, people from other cultures and countries, um, yeah, generally people of colour as well. And it's interesting because people often say that, oh, it's a choice, you can choose to work there or not, but really they're preying on sort of vulnerable people who don't have other options at all. Exactly. I think there's this sense that, like, um, you know, uh, the gig economy is this sort of, like, flexible work time. In some ways, um, I've read quite a few articles that sort of talks about the gig economy as this kind of, like, um, you know, this version of, like, being creative, being an artist. You don't have a, a kind of, like... Uh, set work time or a workspace, it's sort of sold as this quite, um, I guess, kind of like almost glamorous sense of like being free or liberated. It's like the, you know, the American is, dream, you can, you can take ownership American of your life. Dream. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But yeah, the realities are really different. I think that, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of this idea that actually you can never clock off. You're always working when you're working in the gig economy. I also wanted to touch on um, why you're sort of working with M Pavilion on this this week. So this piece is still being developed, and it's to be performed in 2020. However, you're holding a series of sort of interactive previews at M Pavilion. And so why did you feel it was important to run these workshops at this stage of the performance's development? Uh, I, I really love, um, I guess, this idea of how my work or how art can intersect with the public, and I guess, in all of the work I do, there generally is this element of like liveness or possibility for exchange or learning. Because I feel like, especially at this stage in the project, there's so much that I'm still learning and sort of testing. And I kind of love the idea that, um, you know, we're still, I'm kind of like working this out together and we've got time together with the, the workers and the kind of creative team behind the work. It makes sense to almost treat this moment as a kind of live laboratory so there's moments where we're kind of putting out movements and choreography um, we've been doing that this week and being able to welcome the public into that at this very early stage, um, I mean it's kind of confronting, it's like kind of being you know, in your underwear in public or whatever but it's also like quite exciting because it means that there'll be things that um, the public can kind of bring to it or perspectives that maybe I haven't considered or maybe might actually enrich the work down the track. So um, I always sort of try and make some moments for, like, you know, public encounter. So this is sort of, like, just an earlier, I guess, stage of doing that that um, will be there, yeah, all this week. So please come down and say hello. Absolutely. And, I mean, the, this whole opportunity, it's kind of about creating a community amongst what you say is quite an isolated uh, context to work within. Um, and so it's kind of an agent within that. Um, and as you're saying before, it's well known how workers lack basic securities and protections. And perhaps we don't consider much about how isolating this work actually is. And you kind of call it an atomized ex existence. And so how are these themes of community in such an isolated work environment starting to play out in the work, both within terms of the content, but also in terms of the development of the performance? I think um, by just the really simple act of actually bringing people together and, and kind of allowing them to share their stories and experiences, some of which are very shared, others are very particular to their kind of um, background or work. Um, I mean, that's been amazing, even in the kind of relatively short time that we've had together. We made a video work as a group earlier in the year, um, and the notion that I guess each time we work together or make something public, it gives them visibility, it gives them this voice that they otherwise um, 
find quite, you know, it's, it's a struggle to, to get their perspectives heard. So I think that very act of kind of, yeah, coming together and sort of witnessing and listening, I mean, I've learned so much just kind of listening to them and, and much of the work that I've done in the past with the video work that I made earlier this year was really withdrawn from their biography, withdrawn from their experience. So I think um, them being able to see themselves in the work and know that, you know, the video work travels to um, Spain and Germany, like getting these ideas sort of out into an international conversation because it is a really globalised one. Um, I think that's super important. It's been um, kind of really heartening to sort of feel that it is actually sort of doing something, kind of bringing them together. Absolutely. And so for people who want to get involved this week and sort of help co-design the performance, how can they do so? Okay, so it's good timing that we're chatting today. We have have a public movement workshop, so it won't be like a kind of dance class, but it's a chance for you to come down in your baggy, comfortable clothes and some good shoes and bring your water. And from 12 o'clock to 1 o'clock for lunchtime, we'll be working with um, Natalie Curcio, who's the choreographer on the project. And she'll be kind of guiding... I mean, it's mostly um, working on sort of movements or ideas that we're developing this week, but, um, you know, you're welcome as the public to come in and, and sort of get an insight into that. So we won't be doing, like, star jumps or, like, you know, be, like, mm-hmm. doing a massive physical workout, but you'll be kind of getting an insight into how, I guess, um, this idea of, like, embodied learning or, I guess, the body as being such a kind of critical component when we're talking about um, work. Um, so that's today at 12 to 1 and we're also in residence every day till Friday Great. and then and Friday night the another workshop yeah this is at M Pavilion um, there'll be another workshop on Friday at the same time 12 o'clock and then Friday night we're having a party um, and that is called gig night um, very on scene and some of the workers have put together playlists and, and sort of mixes of music that they work or drive to. Um, and then Becky, Sue Dan will be doing a DJ set from 7 to 9. So that's at 6, it starts at 6 o'clock this Friday. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Eugenia, for coming on and speaking about your performance. And hopefully we'll see you at M Pavilion this week. Thanks so much, Rob. That was Eugenia Lim, um, who is an artist and co-director at AFIDS. So we're coming up to the end of the show. How that was a great show. We had a lot of content on on today. It was great. It was full, yeah. full as, <laughs> full as, absolutely. Um, so what do we have? So just then we had Eugenia Lim, who, yes, I mentioned, she's an artist and co-director at Athens, and she works across video and performance. And she's been doing, she's been co-developing a piece on workers of the gig economy. And so if you want to get involved in that, you can go down to M Pavilion, which is just opposite the NGV. And then before that, we had Jax Jackie Brown, who is a queer disability rights advocate who works at Drummond Street Services on LGBTIQ plus disability projects. And she was speaking about some of the more recent work that they are doing with the Disability Advocacy Resource Centre. Then before that, we had a pre-recording about... Um, with Helen Jarvis, who was a geographer, speaking about genocide in Sri Lanka. And then before that, Lois? Yeah, we spoke to Melinda Lizewski from Collective Shout, which is a Sydney-based grassroots movement, and they've joined forces with other international organisations to campaign against the sexual exploitation of young women on Instagram. Great. Well, 
what are we all grateful for this week? I'm very grateful for that interview with Jack Swisson. Super inspirational. So that's, that's really it was great. great. Yeah, yeah. I really, yeah, really enjoyed that. Things so. you don't think about as well, yeah. like the height of a of a reception desk. You yeah. Know? yeah, people bringing to light things that you wouldn't really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, lovely. Yeah, and I mean, it's all about sort of considering things that. I guess, like, you never really find out these sort of these issues that other people are facing yeah. unless you have large co-design groups exactly. working together. And so, yeah, it really emphasizes the importance of mm-hmm. community, community <laughs> radio, yes. and, and hearing from diverse ranges of voices. Um, well, up next, we have Stick Together, and before us, we have Earth Matters. Um, and the weather today, I think it's a pretty mild day. It's 13 degrees at the moment, so mm-hmm. I think it's tops. What's the top say? 20 degrees, so it's a pretty average December, actually below average December day. Um, But we'll see you all next week and thanks very much for listening.